Welcome to Let's Open the Bible, where our goal is to open the Bible and look at what it says. For the next few minutes, we will be looking at a passage from one book. We will continue weekly until we finish that book. I'm Tom Nordstrom, and with me is Bill, Casey, and Nate. Welcome to Let's Open the Bible. This is season number three, episode number 13. We are in the book of Mark, continuing our study here. This is Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 16. And with me I have Nate and Tom. And Nate will be doing our reading. Again, that's Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 16. We're so glad you're here and we hope you enjoy. All right, Mark 6, 1 through 16. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is is this not the carpenter's son, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except for a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many uh, who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others had said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. All right, so in Mark chapter 6, 1 through 16, we kind of see three different... um, Sorry, I'm adjusting my mic here. We see three different... um, stories uh, or, or accounts, the context switches a couple different times. So the first one we see in chapter 6 is Jesus goes to his own hometown, uh, which would be Nazareth, and he starts to teach, and he is uh, rejected there, and um, I guess we can jump off, jump off in this context with what, what does anybody have to say about that? Well, I just have a note that says that, you know, sometimes we just can't see past the person we knew. You know, this, I think, happens a lot in, um, like, really close-knit communities. You may become a teacher or a mechanic or whatever it is, but the older generation just can't see past the fact that you were at once a little kid running around causing havoc like all little kids do. And so they're, well, we can't go to that person because... When, you know, 30 years ago when he was 10, he, you know, 
toilet papered my house or whatever. We just can't get past that point. Whereas if you went to another town, they don't know you. You have a clean slate. Um, I've seen this a lot in ministry itself, like a minister that goes back and works for their home congregation where they grew up at. Um, it can be very problematic in my viewing of it because they always view you as that small child. You know, they don't they don't view you as you should be viewed. They can't get past some of these preconceived things that they saw when you were little or younger. Bad decisions you might have made, and so it just can cause some problems. Um, the familial relationship is unlike really any other, um, and it's hard to kind of get through to some of those people. Jesus kind of makes this you know, wise saying here, it almost sounds like a proverb. Um, he said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And that's really the, seems to be the main point of this passage. That's kind of the crux of these first couple verses, Mark 6, 1 through 5, is, you know, everywhere else you're highly regarded and everywhere else people respect you um, and you might, everything you're saying is true but you go back to the people that once knew you uh, or that knew you uh, previously. And uh, like, you know, like we, like we keep saying, oftentimes people can't see um, who you are. What's interesting though, is it's not like, like a lot of times we see this, um, we hear stories of people, you know, being non-Christians and then they become a Christian. I think of Paul, you know, Paul had a reputation um, and a lot of people, Whenever Paul first became an apostle and a, and a preacher, people had a hard time listening to him, were afraid of him, because he had, you know, and rightfully so, because he had a bad reputation. Um, what's interesting, though, is Jesus, I mean, he's the Son of God. How bad of a reputation <laughs> could he, he have had? I mean, I, I do believe that Jesus was probably a kid like any other kid, um, and I don't think he was you know, an angel child, so to speak, and we can get into the theology of what was Jesus like as a kid. Um, but the point is, he wasn't a, a murderer. He, he likely wasn't a troublemaker uh, like Paul was. Um, so still, though, they couldn't see past him just being young. Um, it's, it, was, it wasn't that he was a bad person before. Now he's a good person. It's just we can't see you because we know you. It's interesting you bring that up. Um, this is kind of off topic, but... I'm in a class for my master's program called Critical Instruction in the New Testament. And some of the things that we study in there are like gospels or books that aren't part of the New Testament canon. And one of those is the infancy gospel of Thomas. And this is what it focuses on is like the early life of Jesus. And it's interesting because as you read through it, which I think it's a good thing just to kind of at least know about, but the things that Jesus does and says do not align with the picture we have of Jesus in the rest of our New Testament. Therefore, it's led to the idea that this should be rejected because it's not consistent with what we have about Jesus and his character. But people have tried to put that into writing to speculate, to kind of have an idea of what, because we don't have any idea of what Jesus' life looked like, you know, when he was young. Uh, we don't really have the that information given to us. But people have tried to figure that out and speculate and try to see a picture of what Jesus looked like when he was a young kid. You know, and it's that's kind of a natural instinct of people. Once we, I know it's a really bad analogy, but, you know, when we have a, um, a movie character, you know, they, 
character is totally fictional, but if they become a popular in popular culture, you know, then it's like, well, what was he like younger? And I think, okay, I'm going to kind of claim how old I am. In my generation, you know, Indiana Jones was a big character and we all wanted, those of us who were fans wanted to know what was he like as a kid. Well, in the late 90s, early 90s, excuse me, there was a TV show that actually answered that question. And, you know, so it was for geeks like me, it was fun to learn about a popular character. It had nothing to do with how he ended up. Right. I mean, it, it did have, in that instance, it had a, a lot to do with how he ended up. And the same is in, true with this, you know. Yeah, what was Jesus like as a kid? We don't know. And we kind of want to fill in the blank because it kind of makes him more rounded as a person. And it seems like, you know, we talked about how bad of a reputation could he have had. Well, to some people, it was pretty bad because it seemed like he was on this power trip and he just wanted to flaunt his power and show what he could do and you know a lot of people thought he was maybe deceiving them and he wasn't actually doing these things because these people here at the very end of this section it says they were offended um and so obviously in some people's minds jesus had a a bad a bad reputation not a good one and so i don't think that was justified but it doesn't change the fact that to some people you know jesus was their enemy it was not who they were looking to for salvation um they didn't believe and who he was and the mission that he was trying to accomplish, they just saw the bad side of it. And so sometimes that bad reputation is not justified. You know, sometimes it is, you know, you've done things that have led to that, but sometimes people can have these um, wrong ideas about you and come to the wrong conclusions. And it seems like that's what a lot of these people hear, um, especially uh, according to this, Jesus' hometown, his family, um, his own house have done. Uh Sorry. We we have an earlier account where his brothers were trying to go and rescue him from his works that he was doing. And I think we just read that not a couple of podcasts ago where he, his family tried to go in and take him. And he asked, well, who are my mother and who are my brothers? Yes. Those who are, those who are here listening and they're doing the will of God are my brothers. Let's see. And in Mark chapter three. Um. I think there's application here for us is sometimes the people that are closest to us and maybe the people that we trust the most, like our family and like our close friends, um, it's okay to disagree with them and they, they're not right all the time. Uh, there's a lot of times that you know in ministry, in mission work, we are trying to teach people the gospel and they know that it's true. They see that it's true. They know the changes they need to make but they can't get past, you know, my family doesn't agree with this. And, you know, if I, if I say this, then you're saying my, my grandma and grandpa were wrong and my mom is wrong and my dad is wrong. And we see a principle, this is, a, this is Jesus actually encountering this, but I believe it's in the Sermon on the Mount and earlier in Mark chapter 3 that we talked about. Jesus teaches this principle that, you know, you are to hate your mother and your brother not literally you hate them, but compared to, you know, now Christ is your new family. Um, and so it's kind of a hyperbole there. But anyway, the point is, just because um, the people closest to you are wrong um, doesn't mean that you have to jump off of what you know is right. And we see Jesus practicing that 
right here. Um, I've encountered that specifically in Central America. You know, you study with people, sit down. They understand everything you're saying. They understand the necessity for certain things for salvation, but they can't get past the fact that if they admit this is right, then they're essentially admitting that their family was wrong. Um, And I always like to put it in perspective and tell them, okay, so if your mom, dad, grandpa, grandma was here and they knew the things you did, what choice do you think they would want you to make? Um, And so I don't know if that helps for any people, but for me it does, is that, okay, we maybe are admitting that they were wrong, but if they had all the information you have now, what choice would they want you to make? Would they want you to spend eternity in hell because you didn't make the right decision, or would they want you to make the right decision for yourself? Um, So I think that's something that we have to keep in mind as well. Um. So it's interesting here, the contrast. We just came off of chapters, the end of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5 uh, is these miracles where Jesus calms the storm, he casts out legion, he um, heals, raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, and he heals the woman with a hemorrhage, and I might be missing one, that might be all of them. Um, but in all of those, we see they have great faith, and he heals them, and they go to the teacher, they fall down before him, and all of those kind of uh, run together. Um, Jesus is showing his his power. It's he's very powerful. Chapter four and five is very powerful chapters where Jesus is revealing his authority, and he can do those things when people have faith in him. But then there's an immediate change of tone and an immediate contrast when we enter chapter six, and it says he could do no mighty work there. This is chapter six, verse five, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people. And healed them, and it's an immediate, um, super one eighty contrast of what we had seen all the way through Mark, especially chapters four and five. Um, is Jesus was healing everybody? He was casting out all these demons. He was doing these amazing things, and people are marveling at him. He's getting this following, and then we get to chapter six, and it says he couldn't do any miracles there, um, and it is. It, obviously, it's not that Jesus lost his power, but it's the people that chose to not uh, believe in him and to follow him and to witness any mighty works. And so there's an interesting, we learn a lesson in how are we going to uh, react to Jesus. You know, it, it, in verse 6, it says, and he marveled because of their unbelief. You would think that, because it does say just prior to that, that he laid a few, laid his hands on a few people and healed them. And yet these people were still unwilling to believe that he was able to do that. They couldn't see past, well, he's the carpenter or he's the carpenter's son. Uh, And it goes back to what I was saying. Sometimes we just cannot see past the person that we knew. It's interesting to me, the last half of that verse, number six, said he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. Sometimes I think that we have this idea that Jesus' ministry was kind of just like lackadaisical, just kind of went wherever, Um, but there was very much a plan, a route to it. Um, A circuit is something that starts and ends in the same spot, you know, roughly a circle. So Jesus had a plan for where he was going to go next. It wasn't just this, oh, I'm just going to kind of go wherever pop into whatever town he had a somewhat of a plan a route that he would take um and i think our evangelism needs to be pointed in that direction you know we need to have a plan for it not just kind of uh, just whoever we come in contact with we'll talk to whatever 
Uh, but it seems like this was very practical and pointed um, in his planning as far as his evangelism and the work that he did. Anybody else, anything in those first few verses? Um, the last thing I want to add is we see that Jesus can only do, I have to be careful how I say this because I don't want to limit God's power, um, but I think the point is Jesus can only act as much as we will allow him. And you have to be careful with that because we see God can God can do whatever in the world he wants to do. Um, but Jesus will only act as far as the people would allow him. Uh, he couldn't do any miracle there because the people didn't have faith and didn't come to him except for a couple people. Um, and there's a an application there is uh, the Lord is only going to work in our lives as much as we will allow him. I think that is a safe application to make, but I want to... I do want to be, you know, careful saying that because, again, God can do whatever he wants to do, and we don't want to put God in a box. But the the point is, that I guess the bottom line is, um, God is, um, maybe God is going to work in our lives based on our prayers and based on our faith to him in, in some sense, but we have to be careful drawing harsh lines in the sand there. Well, you know, what you're saying is um, we got to know what a miracle is for. A miracle isn't just to wow us. It's to build our faith. And if we have no faith in God, how can he build on it? And that, so how can he do any miracle for us if there's no faith to build on? And, you know, that's not going to, I'm not saying that God's going to do a mighty miracle because we have a lot of faith in him. It, it's you know, we have to have the faith first, and then God can, but that shouldn't change how we feel. We shouldn't lose our faith because he didn't do what we wanted. We didn't. He didn't give us that mighty miracle that we we're asking for. Okay, so now let's move to Mark chapter 6, verse 7 through 13. And here we see what we refer to as the limited commission. Um, is that right? Is this the limited commission or is that not right? Maybe I'm, I might be mixed up. The limited commission is there's 70 that he sends out, right? Um, anyway, doesn't really matter what we call it. We see Jesus sends out his 12 apostles and he sends them out two by two. Um, he gives them authority over the unclean spirits. He charges them to take nothing on the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money on their belt. So Jesus sends out the 12 two by two into all these different cities and he gives them pretty specific instructions on what to do. One of the specific instructions was um, to don't take anything. That seems to be a major point here. Don't take anything except a staff. Don't take any bread. Don't take a, a money bag. Um, wear sandals. Don't, don't even put on two tunics. The point is, it seems like, rely on God. Rely on me. Uh, you're going to stay with people. And you don't need this overabundance of material things. God is going to provide for your basic needs, and your job is to teach. You don't need to get wrapped up in all the things that you have and don't have. We're going, I mean, we're going bare bones, we're roughing it, and you're going to teach people um, to, to repent, and that's your job. Um, I think sometimes we, our lives are rooted in, in the material our lives are rooted in in the hours that we work to get money to pay the bills um to 
it, it's all rooted in materialism. And I'm not saying we we should, you know, let, go go be homeless. That's not the point. But the point is, um, if we are not extremely careful and diligent, uh, materialism will run our lives. That's the way our society is built around materialism. And we see a principle here, although this is for the 12 apostles, this is a specific instance. There's still a principle to draw out, and it is that uh, we don't need as much as we think we need to, to carry out God's mission on this earth. Um, it's interesting, Matthew's account of this, it's t- he tells them to not go to the way of the Gentiles and not enter the city of the Samaritans. Um, at this point, it was still just Jews. Um, that whole transition does not happen until the book of Acts. And so they are f- to be focused on Jews, um, those who those who are of a Jewish lineage. So it's just kind of interesting that Matthew's account points it out. Um, Mark's does not. But again, when you're reading the Gospels, you have to take into account everything that we have um, on these accounts. You not only have to do that, you have to make sure that, you know, I know there's, Nate made mention of the, was this the time when he sent out the 70 or is this a different time? And that's a legit question. I mean, yes, he sent out the 12, but could this 12 also have been in the group of the 70 or was that a different send out time and you know it's and i don't mean to get hung up on that um it's interesting that he sends them out two by two and we need to be very careful here because sending somebody out two by two does not necessarily mean sending a young married couple out it in this society in this time of of history it would have been two men and if they had a wife they would have went with them so you know so and i we had discussed this over coffee one day a few weeks ago a couple days ago and it's important especially going out into a mission field that and i think you two would agree with this you know it can be hard in a mission field if you're the youngest person there with nobody there that you know, with nobody there that has your experience in life that you, I think you guys understand what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, it, it's one of those things that, yeah, I, I lived in the same time frame that or Nate has lived in the same time frame as me, but my history goes back further. And I can talk about stuff that Nate would be like, man, you're old. <laughs> Um, something else we see here in Mark chapter six, seven through 13, and I guess we can really get on a soapbox here, um, when it comes to denominationalism, but I, I think it's, I think it's worth talking about is we see they were casting out demons and they were, um, healing people. But at the beginning of this section, we see that Jesus gave them authority over the unclean spirits. We see this very, and I don't want to, I mean, this isn't to call anybody out. It's just to be, you know, biblical. We see this very charismatic movement in in quote-unquote Christianity today of casting out demons and and healing people. And we got to be really careful with that um, and really, really 
careful about having the authority to do so. What we see in the Bible is Jesus very explicitly gave them that authority. We don't see anybody with the the power to just cast out a demon. We don't see people with just the power to heal people. We see Jesus has that. We see Jesus gives that to his apostles. And whenever we see that authority passed down, it's mentioned that it's passed down. Um, it's not, not everybody can do that. Um, I want to go over to, in Acts chapter 8. We see there was uh, Simon. He was a magician. And he was wanting to do all these things. And, and he saw, it's explicitly said in Acts chapter 8, probably around, I don't know what verse it's 18, in. 818. Um, yes. He said he, he saw these mighty works being done, and he recognized this happens through the laying on of the apostles' hands, and he wanted to buy that gift. So what did we learn there? You can't just cast out a demon. You can't just heal somebody. It comes through the laying on of the apostles' hands. I mean, it seems as though it doesn't explicitly say it here that Jesus laid his hands on the apostles, um, and it doesn't matter if he did. I think we could imply that here, but it doesn't matter if it was through his laying on of hands to the apostles or not. What we know is Jesus gave them authority to do so, um, and then the apostles laid their hands and gave the authority. So um, we we learn that that's not just everybody that can do that. Um, and we see all these these faith healings today, and man, we gotta. I don't want to. I don't want to make any blanket statements here. All I want to say is, what does the Bible say? Bible says the authority is given, um, and then there's a, a chain of authority that is goes from one to another. So that's. I think it's worth talking about right here. And it seems that it was the apostles' hands, and so once the apostles have died out, those gifts died away because they no longer can transmit those gifts and so it's not as if you know the apostles can touch this person and this person can touch this person no the chain stops with the apostles the authority was given to the apostles and it seems to be the apostles only um just something worth noting there a couple points you know uh, another account in acts i believe it was the sons of the high priest were going around and they were meeting demons, to your point, Nate. They were meeting demons, and they were saying, in Jesus Christ's name, who Paul teaches, we cast you out. And the demons are like, we recognize Jesus. We recognize Paul. Who are you? And they entered those people, and I think they killed them, but I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, but also, you know, it, it goes back to what is the purpose of a miracle? A miracle is to prove that the person giving the message is from God and you better listen to him. Well, we now have God's all-inspired word. We don't need miracles to build our faith anymore. We, we have his word. If we don't, if we don't believe uh, Jesus in uh, Lazarus and the rich man, he's like, if they won't believe the prophets, they're not going to believe somebody else. So, and and if, if we see that in the account of Nazareth, they didn't believe the prophets. So, how can they believe Jesus? Um, in Acts, it says that these men. It says the man on whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Um, so it doesn't look like they died necessarily, but 
they were overpowered by that evil spirit. And the point is, it asks, you know, they recognize Paul, they recognize Jesus, but who in the world are you? You know, Jesus has given these men specific authority, and so who are you that's trying to do what these men, uh, and only these men and the men that they have touched um, can do those things? There's a uh, extra biblical historian, I, and I wish I could, I wish I could think of it off the top of my head. Um, man, I can't think of it. No, I don't think it's Joe. It could have been. It could be Josephus. It's one of the early church fathers, maybe Tertullian or something. One of those. Um, he mentions how, as the apostles die out, he he lives. You know. He mentions the age of these miraculous healings, the things that we see in Acts, the things that we see Jesus do. He says that comes to an end. Um, so he, he mentions those things ceasing, um, which is, that's interesting. That's not that's not Bible, um, but it is uh, worth noting for sure. And it seems like this is not just something that we are, man, we're against miracles, and the, those, those Christians over there don't believe in that God can do. That's not what we're saying, and we don't. The point is not to just get on a soapbox and and be anti this, but the the point is to recognize what does the Bible teach on the matter, um, and um, use you know make sure we're paying attention to biblical authority and not leading people astray based on things. There's also you know you see people who come out of these these major faith healing movements and. They, they, their faith can be shattered sometimes because they say, "Man, if if God can heal me, and it, and if the, this faith healer could heal me, why didn't he? Why did my mom die of cancer? Why am I sick? Why did I lose?" So, so there's many, many, many problems with this faith healing movement. Not to mention that the Bible doesn't allow for that authority to be passed down. So, that's kind of a a separate conversation. But again, it's you know, we can naturally discuss it here in Mark chapter Um, You know, I'm reminded in Luke's account where the disciples came back from their mission and they were bragging about how many people they healed and the demons listened to them. And what was Jesus' response to them? Don't be proud of the fact that you were able to cast out demons. Be proud of the fact that you were able to teach God's kingdom was at hand. You know, it kind of puts a perspective on what God feels is important. You know, we, we like to think of, oh, the, doing the miracles, we're doing God's work. And it's like, well, if you're teaching somebody about the kingdom of God, you're doing God's work. And he appears to be more proud of that than the fact that you were able to heal somebody. I do think that we can, we can take this this whole doctrine is called cessationalism and it's the idea of this the miraculous um gifts ending and and i do think that we contend in a response to the charismatic movement today we can swing so far to the other side and we say well no god doesn't work anymore and that's not true god does work um the difference is man performing these miracles i wholeheartedly believe that god is is healing people. Uh, I, I believe the Bible teaches and allows for prayer to work and for God to continue to work. And we need to be care. And I'm not saying that we're doing this, but just in general, those who are cessationalist, um, 
will often go so far to say, well, you know, God doesn't do that stuff anymore. And I don't think that's true. I do believe that God gives, um, is, is powerful and is powerfully working. It is, however, different than Paul sneezing in a handkerchief and sending it out to the churches and everyone who touches the handkerchief being healed. Very different than what we see today. Um, so we need to make sure we have a, I want to say balance, but really just biblical. Uh, biblical, we, we, you know, as much as the Bible teaches, that's what we believe. And if the Bible doesn't leave room for it, we don't believe it. So anyway, that's rant over, um, at least for me, unless you all have anything else to add on that. Uh, I do think it's interesting that he commands them to shake the dust off your feet. If they're not going to listen, move to the next town. Um, and it's interesting that right before they saw him do that in Nazareth, they didn't listen, and so he moved to the next towns, and he went on his you know circuit preaching to those different villages. And so now he's saying, he's telling his apostles to do that. If they don't listen, go, uh, move to the next town. And we need to... This is one of the toughest things as a minister and a missionary, especially, is learning, you know, the the line between being patient with people and continuing to bear with them and teach them versus it's time to move on and, quote-unquote, shake the dust off our feet from this person and move to um, another person. That's a that's tough, but there's definitely a time where our, our time is not being efficiently spent talking to that individual anymore. I don't think, though, that shaking the dust off your feet is burning the bridge and not leaving the door open for future conversation. You know, if they're ready to come back, they're ready to come back. They're ready to come talk. Um, So I don't think that the shaking the dust off your feet needs to be this really negative, condescending thing to where, like, the door is closed and they're never going to come around. Um, It's just no one to move on, no one to focus your efforts somewhere else, no one to prioritize your time in another area on another person. There's a difference between shaking dust off your feet and calling down lightning yeah. to, you know, uh, James and John's wanted to do that. And it's like, you know, no, because if you call down lightning, they cannot respond. You know, as, lo- as long as you shake the dust off your feet, they have the opportunity to later remember what you taught them and turn to God. I think I've heard this. I don't know if this is true or not. Just kind of an interesting, funny side note. I believe that Mormon missionaries, literally, as they're going from door to door and someone doesn't listen, they literally go you know, to the end of the block and wipe the dust off their feet. I've heard that. I don't know if that's actually true, but that's kind of... I don't think it's meant to be literal. I think it's a, a figurative statement is move on. Um, but anyway, kind of, kind of funny. Um, All right, so now we get to Mark chapter 6, verse 14, and there's a couple verses here. We're we're stopping in the middle of this context, uh, but we can definitely introduce it. Here we see King Herod. So King Herod, the way I understand it, is King Herod kind of shares power. He's a Jew, um, but he is maybe hired by the Romans, and so the Jews can still have their king, which is Herod, but Herod is kind of walking a a line between Roman power and Jewish power? I don't know. I don't quite understand it, but do you you have any understanding of it better? Yeah, from my understanding, um, this King Herod is not that person. Uh, The King Herod you're referring to is the one where Jesus was born at, and he was the last time that they 
he had complete, I don't want to say complete authority, but he had authority over the Judea, the Judean region. and then, yeah, More free reign. Yeah. yeah. And then once he, is... once he passed away, the Romans are like, no more. We're not doing that anymore. And while he was still ruler, he was a ruler in, he's a figurehead at this point. And this also seems to be, um, seems to be Herod Antipas and not Herod the Great. And so a lot of people know about Herod the Great, but this is a different Herod than Herod the Great from what I can see. Yeah, and this is... Uh, Herod Antipas. Yeah, he, he a son Which of is, his or a cousin or something like that. I think it's his son. Yeah, and, and so this is a different Herod than the one we are introduced to at Jesus' birth. Okay, so what I... I was studying this because I was in Acts chapter 25, and that's where he makes his defense before Herod Agrippa. And I saw, as I was researching it very briefly, that Herod, it was Grandpa Herod who wanted to kill Jesus, sent out that ordinance. This, in Mark chapter 6, would be that Herod's son. And then Herod Agrippa, in later in Acts, who that would be, the grandson, I guess. So, so. there's th- that's I think, and I, that could be wrong. I I am no expert in <laughs> the this area. Um, but anyway, point is, he's a king, and he's a powerful king, and he doesn't like Jesus. As kind of the main kind of all that matters, well, really. Well, at this point, he's interested in Jesus simply be, and and we have another Herod that's mentioned, and that's at the crucifixion because Jesus is brought before King Her- Herod, um, but he is worried at this point because in the in Luke's account we hear of how John the Baptist is is put to death that it's mentioned here that he was beheaded and it, it was goes into it later yeah we see it like okay. later we see kind of a flashback story yeah. but it, it, it's one of those things that it's um he's worried that John the Baptist is back from the dead because John the Baptist didn't pull any punches at all He's like, you're living in sin. You need to get rid of your wife because you stole her from your brother. And uh, yeah, that's not. And it's actually his wife that convinces her yes. daughter to. It's a wild story. Him. And uh, it and also is interesting that Herod, it says he was exceedingly sorry. He didn't want to do this. Yeah. He was kind of, it seems, you know, he had free will and he could have chosen against it. But I guess the phrase is, you know, his hand was forced into doing this um, because he had made an oath and he valued that oath more than he did this man's life. Um, and so it was not something that he was eager to do or wanted to do or was interested really even in doing. It's something that just kind of an unfortunate circumstance that he found himself in. Kind of a, a warning about giving an oath. Yeah. Yeah. And Jet the same way in the Old Testament. Oh, yeah. But uh, no, as far as I know, this is not the the King Herod does not want to kill Jesus. From my understanding, Herod the Great did, but he has died and has moved on. All right. So here in these first couple verses of this context, we see Herod heard of Jesus' name. So it seems maybe as a result of Jesus, or yeah, Jesus sending out the twelve. Um, we don't know that. We just know his name had become known. And that's the same trend we're seeing all through Mark, is Jesus is very popular. Uh, Jesus, he doesn't just have a little crowd of 12 dudes following him. He has hordes and hordes of people following him, 
knowing about him, talking about him, and Herod finds out. Um, and Herod, people are trying to figure out who Jesus is. In verse chapter 6, verse 15, some say he's Elijah. Others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. When Herod heard of it, though, he said, this is John the Baptist who has been raised from the dead. And obviously we know John the Baptist came before Jesus, preparing the way for him. And we kind of see, uh, we're, we're about to get into a flashback. It's going to be next podcast. He Herod mentions that he cut John the Baptist's head off. And he says, I think this is John the Baptist uh, resurrected doing this teaching. Obviously he was wrong. It was Jesus. But him saying that is going to prompt Mark to now write about the story of John the Baptist being beheaded, which that's what we were just kind of discussing. And it's a wild story. Um, It's super, super fascinating. Um, And that is what we're going to talk about next week. So that is all I have for today. Does anybody else have anything? I'm going to save most of my discussion for next week, but I do want to make... um mention um there it mentions here that um they are saying he's elijah john the baptist was elijah well in the gospel of john jesus actually says you've heard that elijah will come well he's here and he makes mention to, to reference to john the baptist and that should have been from my understanding that should have been a clue to the israelite people that the messiah the messiah was there but mm-hmm. i guess it depends if you believe that John the Baptist was Elijah or not. Right. Um, All right. Well, that's all we have. We've kind of discussed a lot. This is a longer podcast, so sorry, not sorry. We will see you on the next one, and we thank you for listening. Bye. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of the Let's Open the Bible podcast. If you have any questions or if you want to talk about the next steps in your faith journey uh, or you are interested in receiving the daily Bible verse over text that corresponds to the content of this podcast, reach out to us at openthebible2022 at gmail.com and we will get back with you. Uh, We thank you for listening and we will catch you on the next one. Have a good day.